This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Dr. Jana, welcome back to the podcast and welcome back to New York City. Thank you. It feels good to be back. Now, where were you? I saw you uh, posting on your social medias that you were partying and also learning things. I was mostly learning things. I wasn't partying sure, very sure, much. Sure, sure, sure. Right. I was in Atlanta for the 60th Annual Conference of the Society for Scientific Study of Sexuality, or QUARES. Jeez, they couldn't come I up know. with a shorter S-S-S-S-S- name. <laughs> they, just, they just like the... Uh, yes, they're big the on the alliteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is that all about? That's one of the largest conferences about sexuality, I guess, from the psychological perspective that brings together researchers, academics, mostly grad students, some undergrads, some therapists, and other people who are kind of related to to some extent, to sex research. And that's where people go to present their, usually their new research, Some of most of it not yet published. Some of it will get published. Some of it will never get published. It will just stay as a conference presentation because people didn't get their shit together to actually (laughs) write it up and publish it. I'm I'm certainly guilty of having done that a number of times. So that's cool. So you basically went there to learn. You didn't enjoy yourself. You didn't go partying. (laughs) I may have enjoyed myself somewhat, but it was mostly to learn. Okay. And conferences are such an information overload, right? You get bombarded with new science, your brain at the end of the day feels very fried and then you have all the networking and all your colleagues that you haven't seen for a year that you want to catch up with and new people to meet. And, and then, then the party. And then the party. And okay. then exploring the area where you are, in this case Atlanta. And I'd never been to Atlanta before. Right. So we did uh, we did a little bit of exploring, not nearly as much as I would have liked to. Well, you're only there for a couple of days. What can you yeah, do? Yeah. Jeez. I think some people enjoyed it a lot more yeah. than I did, but they didn't get any sleep. All right. So you're not too exhausted to do the podcast. You could be okay? No, I think I'm going to be okay. All right. What are we going to go deep on today? Oh, I am super excited about today's guest. We are going to talk about what happens to women's brains during orgasm. Cool. Let's get going. The Science of Sex. Foreplay. I almost want to call this like the men behaving badly segment. Of the yeah, that's what it's becoming. Uh, it seems like every week we actually have to do a roundup of yeah. well, men behaving, sexually misbehaving. Yeah. Let's let's start with Louis C.K. <sighs> By now you know the comedian engaged in sexual misconduct with several women. Five female comics shared their story with the New York Times, and C.K. admitted that these stories are true, which is kind of a change of pace. We're <laughs> yeah, most of them are denying and denying no. and denying. <laughs> so basically, if you do not know the story. Uh, Louis C.K., one of the biggest stars in comedy, would meet these women years ago and would would say, hey, listen, let's come come up to my room, let's chat, you know, and these women, you know, trying to get their foot in the door in show business, have the opportunity to spend some time with someone who can make or break their career. So, like, sure. So they would walk up into their his hotel room and he would be like, hey, is it okay if I masturbate in front of you? As you can imagine, that's an <laughs> odd question it's a very odd to question. get from someone. So uh, a lot- Out of nowhere? So there was no, no foreplay? There was no them making out or whatever? No. And then, no, no out no, of nowhere. Out of nowhere. We're just going to chat and then he asks... If he can masturbate Correct. in front of them. Okay. Uh, the first couple of women, they laughed and ran out of the room. Some didn't know how to react and kind of just stood there. And the scary thing was he just went ahead and did it in front of them. 
So it's not like they said, sure, I'd love to see that. Mm-hmm. He asked the question. They would be befuddled and shocked as one might be and when someone's took, asked that question. Right. And he took the lack of no as a yes. Correct. Mm. So basically he did that. And, and it's one of those, again, we've talked about this before with the Harvey Weinstein thing. It's like an open secret. Like everyone knew, knew about it. They mm-hmm. joked about how what a pervert is. Part of his stand-up comedy. Yeah, he jokes about yeah, stuff he, like he, that. He talks about how he loves to masturbate and how good he is at it. Um, <laughs> so the takeaway from this, though is he put out the statement where basically he says I said to myself what I did was okay because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first so that's that was sort of the way he mm. sort of like uh, justified it to himself it, yes yeah. but he learned later in life too late it is that when you have power over another person ask them to look at your dick isn't a question it's a predicament for them duh I mean I'm glad you came to that conclusion oh this is so sad he was he was one of my favorites yeah like, I like this one God yeah damn it this is I one like of those one. and listen uh, unfortunately oh. we're hearing about the ones that are so pervasive you know we're mm-hmm. hearing about the Harvey Weinsteins we're hearing about the Lucy case but there are now several others I don't know if you heard George Takei who played Sulu from what? Star Trek him too he was accused of groping a male model in the 80s oh, so man. it's it's all these stories coming out I do want to say one thing I, I was being asked you know is this is is this like pervy is this his desire to show himself to yeah. women and that in and of itself is not pervy at all like we all have a certain amount of voyeurism and a certain amount of yeah. exhibitionism in us so there's nothing wrong with wanting to masturbate in front of someone who's watching it's the way again it's the way you go about doing yeah. that like in all of these other cases it's not like they have some some weird i don't know sex addiction or some weird fetish that is in and of itself problematic. His desire to be watched by other people is not problematic. It's his failure to obtain proper consent yeah. for that that is being problematic. And and this is a perfect example of that abuse of the no means no standard of how you negotiate consensual sexual relationships because in this case, them not saying no, he took that as a yes, yeah. but without taking into consideration the fact that they felt pressure because yeah. of their career. Like that's the, the standard case for sexual harassment where someone is using their power over you to kind of take away your ability to say no. Right. It's, it's, it's amazing how a guy could do this for so long get away with it and then all of a sudden the just the pardon the pun the you know the the, the blows <laughs> it blows up in his yeah. face but uh so but sad but it's a pattern we're seeing it over yeah. and over and over again what is truly amazing to me is that even though we're believing all of these cases of sexual harassment and assault and misconduct for all these you know and other celebrities and it's hurting tremendously their careers yeah. and their lives it might not be the case for Roy Moore. Yes, the Republican. In fact, if anything, it might even help. It might help his career. Yeah. The Republican nominee, who's got a special election for the U.S. Senate in Alabama, has been accused of sexual contact with a girl who was 14 years old when he was 32 in 1979. Now, that's just one of uh, several. Women yeah, that have come forward. There have been five, five up, yes. up to this point yeah. who have come forward. Again, it's another powerful person. And you you mentioned the funniest part of it. I think there was a, a poll like people are more likely to vote for Roy Moore now because of this oh. because they don't believe right. what the media is selling. Because he, as I should mention, has denied all these right, allegations. Despite many Republicans in the House and the yeah. Senate, so people who are at, at least at the U.S. level, po- yeah. politics are 
calling for him stepping down and kind of pulling out of the game. Yes, again, pardon the pun. Pardon, pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a big fan of Sean Hannity. Oh, yeah, my you, favorite. You, every night. Uh, he interviewed Roy Moore the other day, and this is the most telling quote you'll ever hear from uh-huh. someone. So Sean Hannity basically came out and said, did you do this? Mm-hmm. Roy Moore's response was, and I pretty much quote uh, word for word, I never approached or dated a woman without their mother's permission. What? Who says that? Who <laughs> says, who would even openly say I've never dated a woman without, who asked their mother to oh date God. someone? I swear to you, this is, those were his words exactly that he'd never been with a woman without asking the mother's, mother's permission. So, all, so he's dated other teenage women before, but he- if their mothers <laughs> gave them to him. I mean, if that's not enough of an admission, I don't know what is. But uh, but yeah, wow. okay. you can't make this stuff up. Okay. It's amazing. Great to know. All right, you know, I will say we've talked about old uh, white dudes who have uh, abused power, but <laughs> I have some good news from some of those old uh, white dudes. <laughs> Sex will not give them a heart attack. Now, <laughs> yeah, I know. It, you know, it, it always in movies and TV shows we always see, there's always a plot point about a, of someone dying in the middle oh, of during sex, sex, you know. I mean, if you are going to die, I think dying during sex is not the worst way right. to go. I knew you'd say that, Dr. John. Well, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, of all the ways that you'd like to yes. die, wouldn't that be one of the best ones? Sure, sure, of course. A heart attack that's basically painless during an activity that is super fun and pleasurable. Sure. Yeah. Is, is that how you describe it? Okay. Well, doctors studied uh, nearly 5,000 cases of sudden cardiac arrest for a span of about uh, 13 years, and they found only 34 of those happened during sex or within an hour of sex. So if you want to break I know you love numbers. That's mm-hmm. a 0.7%, 0.7% of actual heart attacks were because of sex. So- if you're worried about getting out there and if there's heart attacks in your family, don't worry. It's not going to happen during sex. Or chances are very, very, very low. Very low. And were these guys or women? Well, here's the thing. It was men and women, but only two of those cases were women. Okay. So the percentage for women is almost minuscule. Okay. So two of the 34 that had heart attacks during sex were women. Gotcha. So I guess you ladies, is it, is it because you just kind of lay there? What, what is the uh, thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think chances are because men are usually doing more of the actual physical work in yeah. heterosexual sex. So, yeah. yeah. So you've never had that happen? No one has ever died? No one thus far has died while having sex with me. I am happy to report that, yes. I like how you throw in thus far. Well, I mean, I'm not done having sex yet, so All right, it could good. happen. All right, so you could I'm be killing. I'm only 36. Gee. You, you could be killing someone any day now. <laughs> I mean, I guess anybody could be. Uh, right. Anybody who's having sex. Yeah. So just me. But we do know 0.7 percent. That's right. the. You, you have no chance of getting a heart attack during sex. So, and if you want to hook up with Jana, you know, I, I have a feeling that percentage may be higher because I think. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think I do during oh, sex? Oh wait a minute! I gotta go. The science of sex. So some past research of brain scans of women during orgasm had found deactivation of brain regions leading up to or during orgasm. Now, a new study published this fall in the Journal of Sexual Medicine found that this may not actually be true. Instead, across 10 female participants that were either masturbating or being stimulated by their male partner while in the fMRI machine, brain activity gradually increased leading up to orgasm then peaked at orgasm, and then decreased. The activated brain regions included sensory, motor, 
reward, frontal, cortical, and brainstem regions. Our guest today to discuss this and explain what the hell all of this is and what it means is lead author of the study, Dr. Nan Wise. Dr. Wise is a licensed psychotherapist, cognitive neuroscientist, certified sex therapist, board-certified clinical hypnotherapist, and certified relationship specialist with three decades of experience. She needs another job. She's like the Ryan <laughs> yeah. Seacrest of sex. I don't think she has enough, <laughs> enough titles, enough hats. No. <laughs> Her research at Rutgers University has addressed gaps in the scientific literature regarding the neural basis of human sexuality and has a result garnered international attention. She's currently writing a book, Why Good Sex Matters, which will explore the importance of sexuality as a window into our relationship with pleasure and give us insights into the workings of the emotional brain. Dr. Nen Wise, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, I want to point out to listeners that you're quite unusual, professionally speaking. Most people in the sexual neuroscience field would be either researchers and academics or therapists slash clinicians. But you're both of these and then some. How did you end up having such an unusual combination of professions? Well, I think it is um, I'm endlessly curious. And I was always, always interested in how the brain works. And because I come from a long line of very highly anxious people, yeah. I inherited a nervous system that is really excitable and I would have anxiety attacks and all of that. So I really had to learn how to manage my own moods. And as a result, I became really good at helping people learn how to surf their moods and manage them. Mm-hmm. And yet in the back of my head, I was always, always fascinated with the brain and wanting to understand more about it. So that kind of led me to, at one point I was putting um, some time and energy into getting trained as a sex therapist because I always loved sex, loved talking to my clients about sex, Mm -hmm. and then realized that there was an incredible lack of psychologists and social workers who are really comfortable with dealing with sexuality, and I thought it was a really important issue. So during the course of my training as a sex therapist through ASECT, I met Beverly Whipple, who was the lady who named the G-spot. I'm sure you're very aware of Beverly (laughs) Whipple and her (laughs) reputation as one of the premier sex scientists around. Mm-hmm. And we got to talking, and she said to me, boy, you know, you could really be some help to us down at the lab. And she was working with Barry Kamasurak. As it turned out, I had done a brief stint in graduate school with Barry back in the, oh, shall we say, 80, 1980. And he was working with animals, and I wasn't uh, really willing to do that. So I kind of went off and became a clinician. But when I got reunited with Barry... And then along with Beverly, I started doing, helping them with their sex research. Next thing I know, I'm back in graduate school. (laughs) My kids were grown, so I had the time and energy. You started graduate school at 50? 50. At 50. So that was my, it was, you know, and they all thought I was too old, but I, you know, I just was having so much fun. And as it turned out, I was alarmed about how little we knew about the neural correlates and wiring of sexuality. That woke me up every morning, got me to the lab, and we were the first to publish the systematic mapping of the lady parts of the vagina, the clitoris, the anterior wall of the vagina, and the nipples onto the place where the sensations register in the brain, because that hadn't been done, believe it or not, up until 2011. 
Up until 2011, we didn't really know where the sensory information from these genital and nipple regions went into the brain. Exactly. Set the stage a little bit for us. So we've known quite a bit about what happens to our brains during sexual arousal in general. Yeah. Uh, we've known a lot less about what happens during orgasm. So yes. Why is this the case, and what happens during sexual arousal? Yeah, that's well. In sexual arousal. There've been um, a fair amount of research, mostly on men. Surprisingly, not. <laughs> um, some of that research has been somewhat conflicting, but it's kind of you know clear that there are certain areas that get stimulated that are involved with, for example, reward. It's a pleasurable experience, you know, um, stimulation and all of that. What we didn't know is all that much about when stimulation goes over to orgasm. And I think it's for two basic reasons. One is I think people are afraid of orgasm. It's, you know, it's the big O. It's something that many, many people surprisingly are, are embarrassed about the, the thought of even, like, studying that in the lab, that it would be messy, mm. rude, all of that. <laughs> messy. Um, and also I think... There's a kind of, especially around female sexuality, a kind of taboo. And I will tell you from someone who's done now both male and female orgasm data, people are, are much more interested in coming around the lab when we study female orgasm. When we have studied men in the lab, people don't want to go near it, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Can we go back to, because I mean, I'm the layman on the show, Nan, as you know, what is the difference between sexual arousal and orgasm? Like, so when they were doing these studies, so were they just studying up to the point before the orgasm? Like, what did they do? Like, they, they took a feather out and, like, tickled someone? Like, I don't understand. How did that work? That's a great question, Joe. I think most of that research wasn't actually even around general stimulation as much as kind of like showing people arousing stimuli, like visually erotic stimuli. Hmm. So like I think video most of that, or, or images, yeah, videos showing them porn, and there there was some some kind of just general stimulation. But actually, most of that stuff is really about arousal through other than physical stimulation. All this while they're in an MRI machine. Especially for brain imaging studies, the movement involved in stimulation and orgasm is very problematic for getting good data because any kind of head movement, that's a huge methodological problem that I had to uh, basically solve. Right, and people do move. Yeah. Their head moves when they have an orgasm, right? Right. So <laughs> keeping that steady. Yeah. Exactly. So we had to encourage them to practice being still when they were <laughs> masturbating or when someone was stimulating their genitals. But the real innovation was we created this, what we called the Hannibal Lecter happy helmet that looks like this <laughs> really I scary love that name. device that comfortably encases the person's head enough to stabilize it so that it really kind of, it, it doesn't like prevent any head movement at all, but it really stabilizes your head. So mm. it really gives people that feeling of not moving against it so that they keep it still. <laughs> so that was what we really had to do was master those major technological issues with the 
studying the orgasm. Now, before we go on, can you briefly explain fMRI technology in a way that a high school student could understand? We already talked about fMRI in episode two when we talked about the brains of monogamous and non-monogamous men. But for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, you might find that useful. Talk to me directly, Nan. Talk just, to Joe. Just, just me. Doc, don't talk to Dr. John on this. Really simply okay. put is that what functional magnetic resonance imaging does is it has bells and whistles beyond regular MRI, which, which you see structures of the brain, right. and it allows for an indirect measure of the brain cells that get active, because brain cells that get active, oxygen rushes in. So when areas are recruited during an activity or during some kind of, you know, task, there's a short dip where the blood flow goes lower, but then a big rise in the body sending a lot more oxygenated blood to that area. So it's, it's an indirect measure of what areas in the brain are working during a task. Cool. I got it. Talk to us a little bit about how this study of orgasm took place. So you had 10 women come into the lab. In this case, they mm-hmm. brought a male partner with them. And then what? Well, that was kind of complicated because (laughs) what we did was we were hoping to get as many, like 12 people who could have both the partner orgasm and the self-stimulation orgasm within that same time frame in the scanner. And we were going to... So hold on, they're, they're coming in the MRI machine? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you have to. Your whole body has to be there, and it's the least sexy environment you can (laughs) imagine. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Noisy, it's cold, it's cramped. The person who's in the scanner is in their whole body up until about mid-thigh is encased in that, you know, (laughs) tube. So they can't see anybody, they can't hear anybody. What they do, the person in the scanner gets their directions from looking at a video screen, and it says... Start stimulating. Wow. And then it says, push button when orgasm begins. So they get their instructions as they're in the scanner mm-hmm. on this screen. Push button when orgasm stops. Push button when back to baseline. So that, you know, we had rehearsed them obviously beforehand, but that's what they saw. And that's how I knew when the various events happened because there's a time signal that comes into my data with that. And you can combine that with the scan that's coming from their brains. Right, so I look at the specific things. Now, the funny part came in is how are we going to communicate to the partner who's standing beside the scanner inside that little scanner room behind this big, big door and glass? How are we going to let them know what to do? So we made up a tape. So they wore headphones, the male partners, and they heard my voice recorded that said, start stimulating. So they would start reaching in, and it's an odd angle, to say the least, if you guys can picture kind of putting your arm in there. And they were stimulating the partner's clitoris, and we use clitoral stimulation just to be consistent through all the various uh, procedures. And then the partner who's wearing the headphones when the woman would press the button having an orgasm, he would hear, partner's having an orgasm, keep <laughs> stimulating. <laughs> and then when the woman would press to say orgasm is over, 
that button press would elicit another message into the earphones, partner's orgasm is over, stop stimulating. <laughs> so shall we say it was, it was kind of strange. It was really yeah. a, a, a weird, but they were great. Our participants were such troopers. I hate to sound like Jerry Seinfeld, but who are these women? Like, Are they like super sexual women? Because this whole thing doesn't seem very easy. Generally speaking, there were women who found their way to feeling very comfortable and embodied and empowered sexually. And it was a journey for many of them. I did take information and I have their stories, how they got to that place. You mm-hmm. know, everybody from the age of like 20 something to 74. Hmm. You had a 74-year-old woman in in the scanner? And she had two orgasms, one by self and one by partner. She did great. How old was her partner? He was in his probably 20s or 30s. What? Sweet. He was someone that she had a friends with benefits thing going on. Hell yeah. (laughs) Good way to to put it, but this woman was terrific, and these women all went through, you know, all sorts of things in their lives to get really comfortable in their own sexuality and, and their own skins. Sure, it's so not easy to them, get rid of no, all the shaming. No, and it was almost kind of like, you know, what's so strange is I've met a lot of sex-negative academicians. Mm. There are out there, I don't know if you have too, you know, where people are, they just assume the worst. They said, oh, oh are your participants exhibitionists? <laughs> now, there wouldn't, it wouldn't be bad if they were, but this assumption is that mm. anybody would want to do that is doing that to get off on doing something like this in front right, of other people. Right. And the truth is, it was, you know, it reminded me a lot of when women were burning bras and they were, like, kind of feeling really empowered to go and feel so comfortable with your body and think that orgasms and female sexuality is so great to want to contribute to our knowledge of it. It it was really, the women were spectacular. Mm. What's the women's experience in an experiment like this? Did you ask them afterwards if this was actually pleasurable, if this was, like, unpleasant? Yes. After they came out of the scanner, I asked them to rate how intense, how pleasurable, how satisfying the orgasms were. And I asked them to really describe what was, was the, did, it, did this orgasm, was it like an orgasm out in your bedroom or somewhere else? Like I asked them to explain or to kind of share what their experience was. And most of the people said that it's kind of like an orgasm. There's some really good ones and some that aren't so great. But there wasn't anything really qualitatively or really quantitatively different about having the orgasm in the scanner. Some had really incredibly powerful orgasms in the scanner. I mean, the novelty factor, I think, would contribute to at least some (laughs) women's yeah. The experience of, of that. Yeah, and that feeling of mastery. And I had one journalist from England who came over, and she said she had this whole fantasy that she was in a David Bowie song, like, <laughs> you know, ground control to Major Tom. And she said it, it was so hot for her. Wow. All right. <laughs> so let's talk about the results. First of all, are there differences in brain activity between self-stimulation between masturbation and partner stimulation? Great question. I only saw differences, and again, it's a relatively small number of people, but I only saw differences in the period of stimulation. When it came to the actual orgasms, meaning looking at the orgasm compared to another point, the orgasms were were similar enough that it 
made sense for me to be able to combine them. There were no big differences. Okay, so masturbatory orgasm versus partner orgasm looks almost identical in the brain. Yeah, when it comes down to the orgasm, whatever's driving it, I think there's something that is, you know, just uh, once the orgasm kicks in, it's an orgasm. Okay. It's like a race. You know, like the race, every race is different, but eventually you all get to the finish line. <laughs> you know, once you cross the finish line, you've yeah. crossed the finish yeah. line. Okay. Yeah. And you said, but there were some differences in the, the period of leading up to orgasm. What, 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 how is that different between well, masturbation and partner? Initially, was, were the people who were self-stimulating, the early part of stimulation, there was more of a response in the brain, which kind of makes sense. Because when you know you're, you're kind of creating the stimulation yourself, there's no lack of communication between you and your hand. And, and oh. you, can, you drive that bus pretty well. Right. <laughs> but what I found uh, was that at, towards the latter part of stimulation, prior to orgasm, it looked to me that uh, in comparison that the partner orgasm group got a greater magnitude of activation later on in the stimulation period. So once I guess it kicked in, it was really feeling good for them. That's my interpretation. Oh, so it kind of, with a partner, it takes a little bit to get it going because the partner might not be doing exactly what you want to be doing Mm -hmm. in the the beginning. Yeah, Yeah. but then Mm -hmm. you calibrate however (laughs) you do that and then, or once they really get it, then it gets more intense. Yeah. Then you and get it. The additional, the additional turn on of the person doing that to you. Right. And you know, you want to hear the heartbreaking way I lost a bunch of orgasm data. Oh no. Because the partner stimulation condition was a little trickier. There was a bunch of times that women were very, very, very close to orgasm, and their partners moved their hands. Oh, no. They did something different. Different. We get tired sometimes, Nan. No, actually, that's not true, Joe. (laughs) Very often, and we know this from anecdotal kind of evidence that very often when, when men, at least in heterosexual relationships, when men feel like, oh, she's coming, like she's showing the signs that orgasm is approaching, they start doing something different. They go faster very often or change something that they think is going to make it better when all we want is do whatever it is that you were doing right that got us to that point like just keep doing yeah, that just don't stop and these poor men had no feedback from the women because they couldn't hear or see them mm. so as a result sort of like uh, after this wonderful couple who were very good friends of mine they test piloted all of my studies <laughs> when they explained this to me what we did was we created sort of a, a prep for people where the woman would while the man was stimulating with her would give him a signal with a tap that she was getting close on the hand oh. so that would tell him i'm almost there keep don't keep, move keep you know? doing what you're doing it's almost like morse code <laughs> like just tapping a, a series of taps and they would know right so it, you know it was it was there was some challenges so as a result i didn't end up with as many partner induced orgasms and certainly not the not the matched ones that i hoped within subject Mm. So it all worked out well in the long run. But, you know, a lot of the stuff you learn on the fly. It's too bad you couldn't, like, talk into their headphones while they were doing it. Just like, keep doing what you're doing, like coaching them <laughs> through this. Mm. Yeah, that would be perfect. I yeah. mean, if we could have figured that out. But, you know, it, it just goes to show how important, you know, both visual and verbal feedback is to sexual activity. It's really, really important. 
Absolutely. (laughs) So let's talk about the main results then. What does happen in the brain before, during, and after orgasm? And I know there's been some other research, the whole deactivation kind of findings in the past that the brain kind of shuts down or shuts off during orgasm or certain parts of the brain shut off during orgasm. And that's not what you found. In a nutshell, what happens over stimulation into orgasm is a, a gradual increase in activity in a lot of brain regions including sensation regions, uh, regions that integrate sensation, regions that are involved with motor activities, including muscle tension, mm-hmm. and the good old, what we've previously called the reward areas. Uh, those are the areas that are responsible for all of that, you know, delicious you know, feelings, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of activity in the brainstem and and the lower brain regions that are involved in autonomic stuff. Like Explain the, that a the, little more. Well, you know, we have two divisions of the nervous system. We have the central nervous system, and then we have the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is running all of our uh, automatic functions, including like smooth muscle and glands and all of that. So. We saw evidence not only of the activations in all of the regions of sensation and motor and reward, we also saw evidence of involvement of these areas that are sort of like the master control of all of the autonomic, you know, like the sympathetic system, the flight or fight system actually comes on there, which is we've known that that gets involved with orgasm. And your brain's own pain modulating system that kicked in. Interesting. So you you found basically in all of those brain regions, there's plenty of activity going on while people are having orgasms. Yes, especially in some of those frontal regions that are what we call hedonic hotspots, pleasure places. Mm. So the orbital frontal cortex, there's certain places in the the frontal lobes that are also very much involved in pleasure. That's why it feels so damn good. And, you know, the frontal <laughs> lobes get a bad rap, that it's all about thinking and worrying. That's not true. Well, it makes sense, too, Nan, because it's like it's not like you're blacking out while you're having sex, so it makes sense no. that you'd be thinking about something, right? That's a very good point, Joe, because believe it or not, when people are having orgasms, they're very conscious of having yeah. the orgasm. <laughs> Hello? Right. <laughs> now, you've also done some other work on brain activation to imagine Imagined versus actual tactile stimulation for clitoris, for nipple stimulation. Are there any differences there? Do our brains react differently if we are actually being touched versus if we're imagining being touched? Yeah, that that actually was the foreplay that my lucky, uh, hardworking participants had before they did the orgasm. Ah. So that was one big dissertation study. So the first part of that scanning session, they took turns thinking about stimulating the clitoris and the nipple or actually doing it, and they also thought about getting a speculum inserted versus a dildo inserted. Mm. So we played with the thought stuff before we moved into the physical conditions just so we wouldn't prime the thinking stuff by actual physical stimulation. And what we saw was obviously there's going to be more motor areas involved in real stimulation, like you're going to have the hand and the arm and all of that going on when you're actually doing the stimulation of the clitoris or the nipple. And when you're just thinking about it, you're going to have more frontal activations, more activity in the frontal lobes. Because it takes more thinking and imagining Mm -hmm. activity to create that experience 
from your brain. Right. You're thinking about the barista that gave you your coffee this morning, right? Like giving you a little <laughs> inspiration. Exactly. Yeah. And what we found was that the participants were able to very reliably think into activity the area of the brain where the sensations from the lady parts come, you know, the, what we call the paracentral lobule. It's also, we named it the general sensory cortex. That's where the wiring from the lady parts converges into the sensory cortex. And there was also, when especially very vivid, was the imagining the dildo. They had a lot of activity in the pleasure areas of the reward system as well as the the uh, general sensory cortex, which, you know, previously it was thought that the only way to really, you know, stimulate the sensory cortex is with physical tactile stimulation. But apparently but not. You can think it into activation. Yeah, we do. There's a lot of support that I found out about imagining all sorts of different sensory information that we that it overlaps substantially with that from the actual sensation. And what about the speculum? For those of you who may not know, and Joe Thank like, you very much. <laughs> I was just going to ask what a speculum <laughs> was. Thank you very much, Yana. Speculum well, is that thing that gets inserted into women's vaginas when they go to the gynecologist? Exactly. When we were planning this, I remember the moment we were sitting around planning my uh, dissertation experiment, and really fabulous, uh, somebody who was very helpful to me from the, from the um, actual... Uh, team that runs the scanner, we were trying to think of what's comparable, dildo, you insert a dildo, well, what's similar but in a different, completely different context. Non-sexual context. Yeah, so we were looking for, you know, it's still being inserted into a vagina, obviously in a different way, in a different context. So in other words, you know, we were thinking that, you know, the sensation, imagined sensation of a speculum would probably differ a lot than the imagined sensation of a dildo insertion and it did the speculum did nothing for the brain the imaging the imagining the speculum did very little for the brain the imagining the dildo lit the brain up like a christmas tree (laughs) some non-neuroscientists have criticized your work and just neuroscience in general by saying that this quest to map out the human thoughts and behaviors onto specific brain regions is basically modern day phrenology and that it doesn't really help us understand the brain functioning itself. Can you address this criticism for us? Why is it important to identify these maps for physical stimulation of the female body and the male body? First of all, that, it's a great criticism and there's some truth to it, but I think it's what, what happens is people are a bit naive about that. There are some things that are basically wired in the brain. For example, every one of our body parts that has sensation has a input into the sensory cortex in an organized way where it's mapped. And there's a lot of actual maps within the brain. I think what happens is people have a tendency of interpreting the data in a simplistic way, like this region does that or that region does that. Any of us who are really in it, into fMRI and into, you know, people who have a more sophisticated view of it, understand that the brain and the way that the brain works is both localized functions and widespread distributions. 
So what we're really looking at is getting better with our techniques where we can start looking at networks, not just regions that are active, but networks and circuits and all of that stuff. But you got to start somewhere. So the maps of some of the basic things that we know the functioning is localized, we need to know that. And then we go from there. You are currently writing a book for a major publisher entitled Why Good Sex Matters. Why does it matter? The reason why I think um, good sex matters is that if we look at our relationship with sexuality, it's a good barometer in a lot of ways to our relationship with pleasure in general. And Mm -hmm. that gives us a window into the working emotional brain. And... I suspect that there are many people who may have cut off not only from their sexuality, but from their ability to experience pleasure in everyday living, such that it's almost like anhedonia, the inability at pleasure. And we know in our culture there's a lot more people who are showing up in pain, whether it's they're depressed, they're anxious, they're on medication, not that that's a bad thing, but also abusing medications and and all that stuff. So the, the sort of theme for my book is by understanding better how our emotional brain is wired in the basement. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm taking work that was done by people like Jak Pengsept, who is an amazing innovator in, in neuroscience, who looked at, like, how, what is the basic actual wiring of the emotional brain that's been handed down through, you know, through evolution. And when we understand that wiring and when it's out of balance, when we're out of the capacity to have pleasure, because pleasure is very important. It's a sign of things working well. I mean, the, we're wired to move towards pleasure and away from pain mm. by nature, but stuff's not working out so well for a lot of people. <laughs> not when you have all the repression and suppression in our... And people are triggered into fear so much of the time. So it's a book about sex, but it's a book bigger than about sex. It's about looking at pleasure and sort of like the crisis that we're having in our culture around it. We're Mm. obsessed with it, but a lot of people seem to be seeking, 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 craving, craving, wanting, and we really need to understand how we're wired because the wanting is a separate system in the brain than is the liking satisfaction system. So we're living in a culture where we're like, we're being pulled into, you know, like the looking for and the looking for and the getting this and the getting that, and it's not necessarily giving us what's really important, which is really the pleasures of social connection, face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh, not necessarily sex. I'm not saying people should have sex. I don't want to shoot on anybody. (laughs) But if we're not having sex and we're not having pleasure, what's going on? I will say your voice is so deceptive. Like, you you sound like a librarian, yet like you're like the Steve Jobs of sex. It's very (laughs) disconcerting. It's like it's a soothing voice, and all of a sudden you're going into, like, Vagina and clitoral and all that stuff. It's like it's 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 really it's it's like a mind blanker to me, <laughs> to be honest. With you. Do you get that a lot, Nan? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I'm such a like kind of um, nurturing person. People meet me and they think like I'm like a this just warm Jewish. Sort <laughs> so of you mother. sound like it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and. 
And, you know, but then again, I'm an outlier. I'm like a passionate about my work. I'm passionate. I teach what I need to know because, you know, having pleasure isn't something that comes easy to you when you're an anxious human being. Mm. So I come from a long line of very anxious people. We have your, your, your rite of passage is your first anxiety attack. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that sounds terrible. So I'm more curious than I'm afraid. Thank God. Good. I'm having the best time at the age of 60 ever wow. than I've ever had. Oh, that's hopeful. Yeah. That's very optimistic. I bet you Nan's got like some 20-year-old guy hanging around. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, Nan, right? We're not going to go there, Joe. <laughs> Leave Nan alone. my same husband, I, the one that I met forever ago. And, you know, we've always journeyed together, he and I. We've been real adventurous people in terms of, you know, just kind of finding our way. And it's just been, and we, we have a grandchild now, which is like crazy. Oh, congrats. Because I'm like, I'm like, a, I went to graduate school and I'm 50. I don't feel <laughs> old enough to have a grandchild. So, but I'm very excited about this book because I think that there's a lot we need to talk about when you look at what's happening. Why are people voting against their own interests? Why are people seemingly so, like, triggered all the time? It's not good for our bodies. It's not good for our minds. It's not good for, you know, mm. giving a shit about other people. Pardon my French. Yeah. So. <laughs> We're out of balance, and I'm going to do what I can to start translating some of the amazing stuff that there's like we're on the cutting edge of affective neuroscience really hitting into the clinical realm. Actually, speaking of the clinical realm, that was going to be my next and last question. You are a therapist, a psychotherapist, a sex therapist, and a hypnotherapist. And, and how do you, or if at all, apply some of this neuroscience, affective neuroscience knowledge to your clinical work? That's great question. As long as I have remembered, I've been trying to figure out how to help translate what's going on in our brains to my clients. So at one time, I used to look at things like attachment styles, and I still do, to like explain, you know, why are we so preoccupied and anxious about our relationships, being able to explain to people that some people are wired to be more anxious and then have experiences. It's, it gives us power by being able to help us understand. But what's really rang this bell for me big time is when I started to read up on the findings of people who were mapping out the mammalian brain, like Yak Pengsept, all animals, all sophisticated animals, and, and even some, in, some chickens, and there are maybe some sophisticated chickens, who knows? <laughs> we all have similar roots in our emotional systems that are not the, the high, the, what, psychology is cognitive heavy. It's not at the top of our brains. We're driven by this wired in emotional systems, these systems that have survival function, fear, rage, lust. Seeking, going out and getting the needs met. These things, care is, you know, taking care of each other. Play mm -hmm. is how we all learn. All mammals learn. Those circuits are in the brain. If you stimulate them with electricity or chemicals, you're going to get that behavior. So psychology has not paid attention to the bottom of the brain to help people understand that wiring so that they can harness it better and not take it so personally. So how do I do it for me? I've got the fear system that goes on almost, you know, fairly constantly. I just have a very different relationship with my fear. I don't take it nearly as seriously as I used to. Mm -hmm. I'm able to downregulate it by talking to myself a lot and, and also elicit my more playful, you know, curious side, which kind of gets me into social connections, which are hugely important 
for our physical and emotional regulation. So that's the long answer. The short answer is I help people better understand the wiring of their emotional equipment so that they're able to recognize when they're in, let's say, the fear mind or the rage mind or the less mind, mm-hmm. that's just the mind they're in. It's, it's, they know what's on their mind, but they don't always know which mind they're in. Awesome. Nan, thank you so much. This is so much fun. <laughs> Nan Wise, you're the best. We'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye. The Science of Sex. Afterglow. Dr. Jana. You're the professor here, I'm not, but students at Harvard University were able to get answers to their most probing questions when the Ivy League school hosted its annual Anal Sex 101 class. Woo-hoo. Didn't know that was a thing, but the instructor... No, I did not. Well, I know about anal sex, I didn't know it was a class. But anyway, <laughs> the, the instructor, Natasha, says, quote, it's all about practice, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. Students at the nation's number two college learned how to relax their rectum and passed around butt plugs as they were schooled in the ins and outs of sodomy. Sodomy, damn. Yes. Natasha told the future leaders of America, not all men have penises, not all women have vaginas. The butthole is the great sexual equalizer. All humans have a butthole. That is correct. All humans have a butthole, and all humans have the potential of enjoying that butthole. Thank you for confirming the butthole yes. scenario. I, I did not, I was not 100% sure about that until not, <laughs> Natasha, now you have uh, gaveled in but on But she this. does make a point that not a lot of people do know and understand that not all men have penises, not all women have vaginas. And that speaks to people who are gender variable, if you will, right? right? There are a number of men out there, people who identify as men who don't have penises, a number of people who identify as women who don't have vaginas. All right, now the cost of going to Harvard is $43,000. That's mm-hmm. tuition. So for $43,000, you get an anal sex class in there, apparently. Are a well, lot that's of... not the only thing well, you get. <laughs> I understand and that. And it's optional. I'm, I'm just, you don't I'm, have to. I'm, I'm, no, but this is part of their annual sex week. They've been doing it for a number of years now, and it's been in the news because it's so controversial to so many people. Yeah, yeah. it's funny that the, like such a the snooty school you know, that gave <laughs> us like the Facebook kid uh, is, is teaching people how to do anal sex. Is that is that common in a lot of colleges that they're teaching I, these kind of classes? I don't think so. I think a lot of colleges would not get away with it. Okay. <laughs> I think you need a certain level of, I don't know, liberal-minded, uh, not just student body, but also an administration that is committed to whatever maintaining independence and freedom. And we should note, this is not an actual class that is being taught as part of the regular curriculum. Oh, they're this, not getting credits for it? No, nobody's getting <laughs> credits for it. It's part of their sex week. And so as one of the many classes being offered, like a one-off class gotcha. being offered during that sex week is this. I think another one is Kink 101 and uh, Beyond the Hub, broadening your porn horizons. There's so much more pornography out there right. that many people argue is more ethical in the way it's made, in the way it's marketed and all that than your regular sort of Pornhub or you porn experience would have you think. Okay, so as you being the professor, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, have you ever taught these kind of classes? Like what, what are the subject headings of your classes? <laughs> well, I don't teach practical information to my NYU students. Okay, good. Right? So my classes on human sexuality, one is the psychology of human sexuality, which is a very broad level course that touches upon all sorts of aspects of human sexuality from a psychological perspective, desire, orgasm, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, sexual assault, fetishes, wow. uh, sexual dysfunction, therapy, sex work, pornography, right? So we touch upon all of these things 
a little bit, as okay. much as you can cover in mm-hmm. one lecture per How long is one of your class. lectures? It's almost two hours, wow. an hour and 50 minutes, Oof. the way it's done. Yeah. But we don't talk about these practical, like, here's how you do this. I may offer a, a practical tip or two here or there, yeah. but for the most part, we talk about what research knows about these topics and what are some general patterns and what is correlated with what and what do most people think or feel or do and and how is that related to other aspects of their personality or behavior or mental health or physical health oh, and okay. so on. So that's what I teach, Okay. <laughs> uh, whereas these sex week classes are a lot more practical how-to. Mm. And I actually strongly, very strongly believe that we should be teaching people these practices things in this way, in this educational setting, as opposed to leaving it up to them to figure it out from porn or from their friends or from whoever their partners happen to be and whatever their partners happen to know, because that's such a haphazard way of learning and also very high chances for inaccurate learning. Because if you're learning from porn, that is so inaccurate in terms of what real bodies look like, in terms of what real people like or don't like, in terms of what positions feel good, as opposed to look good on camera. Nobody teaches people that. So I think we should have this practical kind of hands-on education. Of course, it can be optional. You know, you don't have to force people to to take it if they (laughs) don't want to, but yeah. So that class, that that sounds like a real class. Like, what was the name of it? Human Sexuality? (laughs) Psychology of Human Sexuality, that's See, but that didn't have like a goofy name like, you know, what what is this? Like Beyond the Hub, Kink 101. It's not like, you know, Casual Sex 202 or something like that. (laughs) That's not a real class out there. Well, I am actually teaching a, it's not called Casual Sex 202, but I am teaching the psychology of casual sex next semester for the first time. Wait, wait, that's an actual class kids could sign up for? (laughs) Yes, it is. No way. Now now it is. It just got approved recently by the psychology department at NYU because I had suggested it to them a couple of semesters ago and they were thinking about it and they said yes. So next semester students at NYU can take that for credit. Again, it's not a how to have (laughs) casual sex. Imagine all the like the guys line up outside your classroom. All right, so I'm here to find out how do I have the casual sex? Where do I sign up for this right now? No, no, that's not what it is. It's okay. basically so unlike my general psychology of human sexuality class, which covers which everything. Is, covers a little yeah. bit of everything, not a lot of depth. It's more about breath in terms of all the different topics. And it's mostly a lecture-based class where I stand in front of the classroom and I do PowerPoints and present all this information and research and data. This casual sex class, as well as my other class of a similar type on sexual orientation that I have taught a couple of times uh, before, those are smaller seminar discussion-based classes where students get to read original research, empirical research from the actual academic journal articles, and then we discuss those articles in class in some sort of order so that we cover all of the different topics that are relevant in this general topic of casual sex. So we're going to talk about things like why do some people desire casual sex to begin with? Why are there gender differences in that regard? Is it uh, related to negative mental health consequences? What What is the research on stigma and slut shaming in, in response to that? What are the risks in terms of STIs and unwanted pregnancies? And so, right, all of these things that are sort of related. So I I think people will walk away with some best practices, Mm -hmm. if you will, if they want to have casual sex, how to do it in a way that's healthy, but it's not going to be a... How-to manual. Yeah, how-to manual, yes. It's (laughs) It's, going to be a lot of science-y reading. I can only imagine, Dr. Jana, like... A kid who signs up for your class, and then maybe like their parents get in the mail and like they're like, "Hey, so what classes are you taking?" This year? All right, you're taking a psych class, American history. Oh, 
There's a casual sex class. That's that's interesting. But that, so when could people start signing up for that? So if they're going, so if they're going to NYU right now, when is when is the registration? Actually, right process? now, registration is okay. right now. So All right, now's so your chance. And there are only I think 15 spots in the Oof. class. It's a small discussion based class. Yeah. All right. So if yeah, you, but for the parents, yes, I'm not teaching your kids how to have casual sex. Good. That's good to know. Yeah, we're we're talking about the science behind it, the psychology behind it, the behavioral patterns around it, because it is a relevant topic. A lot of people are doing it. It's something that the vast majority of young people today are going to experience at least one casual sexual encounter in their lives. doesn't necessarily mean it's a full-on, like, penetrative intercourse type encounter, but they are going to make out with somebody that they're not in a long-term relationship with or have something more, like actually have intercourse or have oral sex or something like that. Yeah, so it's something that many people will experience, and there are particular challenges around how to navigate that setting and relationship context for sex as opposed to the long-term, committed, loving relationship context for sex. All right, well, if you don't win the lottery and win one of the 15 seats in your class, (laughs) uh, you will be back here with a new uh, study to discuss next week, correct? Oh, yeah, we're back to discuss something uh, that we haven't talked about much. I mean, I just talked about porn a little bit earlier, but we haven't really had a guest on the podcast to talk about porn. And next week, we speak to Dr. Samuel Perry about his fascinating work, a few different studies that he's done over the years on whether viewing porn reduces marital quality and relationship quality in general and increases divorce rates. Whoa. Yes. I think it's one of those issues that a lot of people have a lot of questions around. Like, if I watch porn and I have a relationship with somebody, is my relationship going to suffer because of me watching porn? Or is our relationship going to suffer if my partner is watching porn? And we have data. Whoa. So come back next week. I like how you all wrapped up with a bow there, Dr. Jana. If you like what you hear about this podcast, make sure you rate and review us in the iTunes store. Tell a friend, tweet us at Science of Sex Pod, or hit us up on Facebook. Just search the Science of Sex Podcast. Dr. Jana, see you next week. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 